We are in a series on the seven deadly sins. And the seven deadly sins are kind of called that because they're cardinal sins, uh, meaning they're kind of deep sins that lead or kind of flow out to other sins. They're, they're kind of the archetype sins. And we talked last week about anger and, and really the root of againstness and how it just permeates so much of our life and then comes into our speech and how we talk and our slander and our gossip. And it's a fascinating thing. Christians, as much as anyone else, sometimes more, need to feed on criticism to find identity. I've, I've met in the last several months a couple times with Ken Johnson from Westside. Um, I just pursued him because I felt like I could probably learn a lot from him. And it's really interesting. He's a really cool guy. And I kind of was chuckling to myself thinking, man, he's been a really high-profile figure in this town for a long time, and so is his church. And it's so easy for Christians to use anything high profile, especially religious things, to, to give us something to talk about. Because we need something to be against or something to kind of pick at so that we can have an identity or, or something to gather around so we feel a degree of unity with other people because we have a common thing that we can kind of pick at. And, and so I was thinking this week, it's interesting, Ephesians 4.29 says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth except for what is helpful for building up others according to their needs. Uh, last Sunday night with the 20-something group that meets at, at, at Tamara's in my house, I said, wouldn't it be interesting if we did one of those kind of tests or dares, like go a whole week and live out Ephesians 4.29, like live it to the T. And the question really is, would we run out of words? If all that came out of our mouth for a whole week was nurturing and, and everything that was critical or would cut down was excluded, would we run out of things to say? And if we'd run out of things to say, what would it mean? Would it mean maybe that we're not spending enough time with God, connected enough to God, in proximity enough to God, that there's enough sustenance, enough nurture going on here that, that there's an endless supply of life-giving words, encouraging things, building up things that we can say about anyone, about everyone, about any situation, finding the positive. And so we really begin to realize these sins that we're talking about, we can feed on those and seek to be identified by those. And it really means that we're not feeding on something else so that we can be identified with someone else. And so, a lot of these cardinal sins, chief sins, these seven deadly sins, are things that can come to identify us. Pride, anger, and againstness, like I was talking about, gluttony. And so it's really hard to talk this morning, because this one is really irrelevant. Uh, nobody really comes to define themselves by their passions, or their lust. If you scratch one layer deep, five layers deep, 20 layers deep, you really don't find this anywhere. Anywhere. Especially with guys. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, jo I'm, this is, I'm joking. I don't, I've never talked on lust. You want to know why I've never talked on lust? It's too relevant. I mean, I've said this before, but I've come to realize that my fears can often dictate what I preach on. I don't want to talk about my... I've had... You want to know the pains I live with. Is I, I really yearn for this church to be like a family. And so, you know, we run out of money, we talk about money twice, and then you hear about people leaving the church because we were talking about money. I carry that with me for months, it's like knife in my gut because I'm like, ah, oh, how, how, how do we stay a family? And maybe we should just never talk about money again. And then that feels really, it's, it's this back and forth of, of fears dictating how I feel about what we talk about. And I don't want to be living out of fear. I don't want that to dictate things. I want to talk about what's at the heart of, 
of our faith, not only just our faith, but us as spiritual beings. The reason I've probably never talked straight on about lust is here's the thing about lust. You talk about lust, and it's so, so relevant that what you're saying gets lost quickly in the discomfort of the room. Okay, so, so here's, I think we usually start with the wrong question or we start at the wrong place. So we're going to talk about lust. Let me come with 20 statistics about how every guy in this room is, is somehow involved in porn or struggling with porn or, you know, whatever it is. And then five other statistics, throw some women in there, throw some Christians are no better than anyone else in there, married people are doing this. And, and then I read those and everybody's just like so freaked out. And you know what I'm talking about, that you, you begin being so aware of, like, yourself, and then you're, like, just sitting there, like, this is awkward. I mean, I wonder what so-and-so is thinking. And then you're like, okay, I'm just going to sit here and just try and pay attention. And then two minutes in, you're like, I haven't moved in two minutes. <laughs> I wonder if the person behind me thinks I'm struggling with pornography because of how still I'm being. And then you're like, oh, and then you scratch your head and you're like, oh my gosh, it's a, tell, it's a telltale sign. Someone saw me scratch my head and, and right when I did that, it was right after he talked about Christian guys doing this and I wonder if someone's, oh, I'm going to cross my leg and then, oh my gosh, that, that's, I'm, I'm, act, I'm drawing attention to myself. I just, I'm, I'm acting nervous. My wife now sees that I'm acting nervous. This is awkward and and. You know what I'm saying? I have no idea what he's saying. I'm just living out this awkwardness because of how we're coming at the subject and, and trying to say, you know, what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, I mean I'm, not, I'm not the only one, right? With the scratch and the leg cross. I mean, somebody else, like, and, and then it gets lost. So I'm like, man, those, those talks are just funky. And then it's like, at the end of those talks, it's, okay, we've got this guy's book, and all you guys should go to men's ministry because we'll heal you of all your, your lusts. And, and then something really weird happens. It's as if we've now branded men's ministry as the place that all men go who are struggling with their lusts and pornography. And so then you tell your wife, yeah, I want to go to men's ministry, and it's not about football anymore or ultimate fighting or Bible study or fellowship, but it's this subtle little thing of, of well, you must need it. Or do you need it? <laughs> and then you're, you're trying to drop subtle things like, you know, I'm going to go to men's ministry because they need some disciple makers in there, you know. They need some, some discussion group leaders. And you're, you're making up words to try and communicate something subtly like, I'm not one of the other guys in men's ministry. I'm, I'm fine, honey. You know, or... So how we come at this thing is, is, really, is really weird because it is so relevant. It, it's so ever-present. And so what I want to do this morning is try and maybe come at it from a little different place. And uh, I'm going to ask you to think a lot this morning. Um, seriously, I mean, I'm going to ask you to really try and wrestle with some ideas. Because I think that what I really feel like we need to do is, is shift our paradigms. And that might involve some deep thought. So um, if you can... Flex with me that way. If you want, turn to Proverbs. I'm going to read out of the NIV this morning. We'll just kind of frame it in Proverbs chapter 6. The book of Proverbs is replete with warnings about adultery and, and the adulterous person and, and kind of unbounded pleasure without any kind of framing or boundaries set to it. And, and this is one of those sections in chapter 6. But I just want to read a couple verses and make a point. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 25. It's talking about the immoral person, the wayward person. And it says, do not lust in your heart 
after her beauty. Remember, this is written to Solomon's son. It's kind of the, the book of Proverbs for the, the future king. He didn't evidently read it too much. Um, but Proverbs 25, Do not lust in your heart after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes. For the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread, and the adulteress preys upon your very life. This is a sin, if we give ourselves into, that will actually suck us dry and take away our life. There's something that's desirable, that's in front of you, whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, and if we give to that, we're going to not just be giving a decision or a moment. We're going to be making a choice to give our life, to spend our life, to empty ourselves out, become identified with something other than what we were identified with. It's something that will rob us of our very selves. And so the question I think that we ask this morning is, um, what do you do with a sin that, that takes over? Lust is a sin that takes over. It enslaves us. The, the picture here is the Greek myth of the sirens. And if you remember the sirens, the sirens were, depending on at what point in the mythology, two or three or four of these creatures that would sing this song and it would draw mariners. They would be entranced and it would draw them in and then shipwreck them on the, on the, on the rocks. And it's this picture of this call, this song, this siren uh, that, that you couldn't resist and it would just suck you in and then kill you. Uh, the interesting thing is in that mythology, this, this is just me nerding out, but in that myth that it came to be viewed almost as mermaids, that the sirens were like mermaids. So Portuguese, French, Spanish, Italian, Romanian, um, most, a lot of European language, the word for mermaid is a derivative of siren. So if, if you see the word for mermaid, it looks like siren. Um, but it's this picture of, of bringing you in, enslaving you, taking away your rational faculties, and you become subservient to this call. Does that make sense? So what do we do in the face of that? Dante in... Uh, the 14th century when he was writing his divine comedy in, in hell had this picture of those that were guilty of the sin of lust were being blown around by hurricane winds endlessly kind of to, to give a picture to that runaway passions and the lack of self-control that they had had. And so instead of giving um, stats, I want to ask this question of what is the nature and the end of rightly ordered loves. If, if lust is somehow giving way to these passions to where there's no reason, no thought, and we become enslaved, what would be the opposite of that? What would it look like to order that, to bring reason to that, to have it in boundaries? What is the nature in the end of rightly ordered love, affections, or passions? See, the mistake we make with love is that we often equate it too much to lust. We think that love is measured by the intensity of the want. That love is measured by how much we crave something. That love is, is related to appetite. And so we begin to define love in, in some sense in the category of lust when it's something radically different. When we, when we listen to radio, when you go through society, we, we talk about love completely wrong. We talk about it as if we talk about lust. So the interesting thing would be if you switch out the word lust for love in Bible verses, what would that look like? And, and it would look radically different. True love is measured by giving your life away, being willing to die for someone else. So just think of it. True lust is measured by willing 
your willingness to die for somebody else. There's no greater command than your lust for God and your lust for your neighbor. Love is measured. Just think about this. Uh, You should lust for your enemy and pray for him. Love is measured spiritually, sacrificially. It's, It's measured by your willingness to forgo passion or pleasure because of your love for someone else or something else. In, in a sense, it's a completely different thing than, than lust. It's, it's not about cravings. You know, the interesting thing about cravings, from a physical standpoint, so many cravings can be false cravings. You know, food, you know, food allergies and stuff like that, something that you're not supposed to eat, it, it actually does harm to your body. Addictions. They produce cravings to where your body yearns or wants more of that thing that you're actually allergic to. So if we go around just eating what we're craving, oftentimes we're going to be eating what's doing us harm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Spiritually, I mean, the body and the spirit are so similar in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And spiritually, it's the same thing. Just because we crave something doesn't make it morally permissible. Just because we crave something and there's an intensity of desire doesn't make it good or doesn't make it a higher picture of love or something to that effect. Does that make sense? So what we're wanting to kind of talk about here is what is the nature and the end of rightly ordered loves. C.S. Lewis and Freud saw this differently. For Freud, by the way, I have great drawing and writing. This is like an etch-a-sketch. So Ephesians 4.29, you just build me up for doing the best I can on an etch-a-sketch, but I I, I actually like my writing, um, so I I don't want to hear anything. So for Freud... What he, what he looked at was that love was, was less than lust. In other words, lust was the highest picture of human desire where love was registering lower kind of on the Richter scale. That from an evolutionary perspective and from a kind of an animalistic perspective and from a sexual perspective, love was here, but lust was so much greater and more intense and more passionate. Do you see see Freud's logic there? Do you see it? Okay. I, I need a little more than that. I mean, I'm not like... Okay. You guys get it? Got it. it. All right. So here's Lewis. Now, Lewis comes from a totally different perspective, and he's really trying to to get at the spiritual side of God creating us in his image. And what he wants to say is that lust is less than love. Lust is purely physical in its just a animalistic base desire. It's, it's not um, the soul or the spirit so much as it is just the cravings or the appetites of the body and that it's on this lower order. But when we understand things rightly and when we train ourselves and when we mature ourselves, we come into a, a recognition of a higher kind of desire and we follow that higher kind of desire and reach a greater kind of satisfaction. I, I understand what Lewis was after all the time when I look at my daughters and how they choose to eat or want to eat. You ask two of my daughters, my, my, my third and my fourth. Now the fourth says it because she just copies the third. 
okay? But you ask either of them what their favorite thing is, it's ice cream. You give either of them ice cream, especially if it's two scoops and and in a cone, they're both going to complain an hour later of what? Stomachache. Okay? Now, you ask my oldest daughter what her favorite thing is, and it would be like spending time with dad or reading a good book. I mean, I mean that. Spending time with me. It's, 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 uh, it's actually, I think, I don't know. Anyways, um, she's not going to say ice cream because she's learned, like, man, I, don't, I actually don't want to eat ice cream. It gives me a stomachache. It doesn't satisfy me. It's, it's cotton candy, you know, and what I really want is something that puts a smile on my face at the end of the day when I go to bed and, and it fills me, and, you know, and it's deeper. And, and so she's going to come at things from a whole different level of maturity. And what, what Lewis is saying is he's saying, listen, when we understand the nature of our appetites, God, you know, sex didn't catch God off guard. Appetites don't catch God off guard. He created them. Okay, now if we pervert them and try to satisfy them with something that's only going to leave us with a, with a broken heart or, or an empty stomach or a, you know what I'm saying, that doesn't really satisfy, that's not God making a mistake, that's us making a bad choice. It's a reflection on our, our maturity, not God's wisdom in creation. When we begin to understand or grow or mature ourselves, we begin to understand this desire has an end that it was created for, and I'm going to learn how to choose the things that satisfy this in a way that brings joy or true happiness. And and I'm going to look at cheap pleasures as just that. And I'm going to look at higher spiritual pleasures as what I really want, hunger for, and I'm going to orient my life toward So Lewis is coming along and saying, listen, no, if we understand it rightly, it is not this evolutionary thing that Freud wants to say where one is a greater intensity than the other. He's actually saying this is a poor, broken, twisted form, immature form of something so much greater, higher, and stronger. C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, this is one of his famous passages, he says this, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards that are promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. You see, in the Christian church, we can get ourselves so into this this whole don't touch, don't taste, don't do that, no, run around slapping hands and, you know, trying to control all our desires and desire itself becomes the problem. To where we find a way to just become a stoic and put an unhappy face on and kill desire itself. And then non-Christians look at us and they're just like, man, I, I, don't, I don't, being with Christians is weird. They're defined by what they're against. I don't know that they're for anything. And they're not, it's not filling to be with them. They just don't seem content. Or they don't, they're not, you know what I'm talking about? We can become so miserable that we just walk around scowling all the time, being defined by what we're against, because we begin to think that desire itself is the problem. And Lewis is saying this. He says, if we understand that we're promised glory, we're promised feasts in heaven were promised this fullness of joy lewis wants to say that it seems our lord finds our desires not too strong desires not the problem but too weak listen to how he says this we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We'll take cotton candy and think it's going to scratch the itch rather than stepping back and understanding we're spiritual creatures and there's so much more pleasure offered us 
if we would begin to talk about this thing called love and what it looks like between us and between God and that it's so much deeper, fuller, more lasting and satisfying than any kind of cheap fix that we can have. I want to read at length, it's kind of story time, if you will, but I want to read at length the passage from C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. Great Divorce, um, you can get it at the kilns on Friday. There's a big Black Friday sale. But if there's anyone that comes to me and says, where should I start with C.S. Lewis? I always tell them The Great Divorce. It's a fascinating, fascinating book. And it's kind of a fictional look at what it looked like kind of on the edges of heaven. So here are some creatures that are not in heaven. They're kind of taken on this bus ride, and they're taken to the edges of heaven, and there's this theology at work where Lewis is saying the things of heaven are so much more solid and real than the shadows of kind of hell. So these little waifs, these ghosts from, from hell, uh, almost like a purgatory. Read the introduction, though, because he talks about how to interpret it, you know, it's you know, not literally, etc., it's figuratively. But, but these little ghosts, they, they walk on the blades of grass here on the edges of heaven, and it's, and it like, it's sharp and, and cuts and hurts them. They're so much less solid, less real than, than this area of heaven. C.S. Lewis always talked about the shadow lands. We're in the shadow lands. Things are going to be so much more solid when we get to heaven. So here's this passage um, there's kind of a main character with someone kind of as a guide walking with this person. Think of uh, a Christmas carol, you know, like how you kind of go through and w- observe these different scenarios. And this is a particular scenario uh, with a particular individual, and, and this is what it says. Off so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man, and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body too, for there was heat coming from him as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a uh, tyrannous summer day. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, uh, chap, here he indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet, quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here, I realize that, but he won't stop. I shall just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, uh, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first, I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it, because up here, well, it's so damned embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process should be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think over what you've said very carefully, and honestly I will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be most silly to do it now. I'd need to be in good health for the operation some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back! You're burning me! How how can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. No, it's not so. Why, you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know, you think I'm a coward. 
But it isn't that. Really, it isn't. I say, let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll, I'll come back again the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You are jeering at me. How, how can I let you tear me in pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the damn thing without asking me? Before I knew, it'd be all over by now if you had. I, I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed in on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. It said, be careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd be only sort of a ghost, not a real man as you are now. You, you, you don't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit it, I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say quite innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may. Damn and blast you. Go on. Can't you get it over? Do what you like, below the ghost. But ended whimpering, God help me. God help me. The next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I've never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed and then flung it, broken backed on the turf. Ow, oh, that's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. And for a moment, I could not make out anything distinctly. Then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing ever more solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. Then brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands, the neck and golden head materialized while I watched, and if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, naked, not, not much smaller than the angel. What distracted me was the fact that at the same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flickered between huge and glossy buttocks. Suddenly, I started back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I had ever seen. Silvery white, but with a mane and tail of gold. It was smooth, shining, rippled, with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hooves. At each stamp, the land shook and the trees dindled. The new-made man turned and clapped the new horse's neck. It nosed his bright body. Horse and master breathed each into the other's nostrils. The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the burning one and embraced them. And when he rose, I thought his face shone with tears. But it may just have been the liquid love and brightness. One cannot distinguish them in that country, which flowed from him. I had not longed to think about it. In joyous haste, the young man leaped upon the horse's back. Turning in his seat, he waved a farewell, then nudged the stallion with his heels. They were off before I knew well what was happening. There was, there was riding, if you like. I came out as quickly as I could from among the bushes to follow them with my eyes, but already they were only like a shooting star, far off the green plain and soon among the foothills of the mountains. Then, still like a star, I saw them winding up, scaling what seemed impossible steeps in quicker ever moment till near the dim brow of the land landscape, so high that I must strain my neck to see them, they vanished, bright themselves into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning. The lizard in this kind of 
metaphor that Lewis puts here is lust. It's desire. And it's whispering in the ear of this ghost talking about pleasures and cheap pleasures and illusory pleasures that, that it's bringing and kind of leading and steering kind of, you know, this person into. And what Lewis is basically saying is that when Jesus comes, when God comes, when we when we enter in finally into this relationship where we're willing to die to self, that we might live to him, that what has to be killed is that part of our heart, that part of our self that is submitted to another master or another voice that takes us to other places, cheap pleasures, other ways to, to fill our desires where we're not fully living as we were made to live. And what's going on in this picture is this, this angel of light taking lust and breaking its back, throwing it to the ground. Now, if we were in some radically crazy, off-the-chart, moralistic, behavior-focused church, that would be the end of the story. We've broken lust, and we've thrown it off, and we're done with desire. But do you see what Lewis did? Out of the ashes or out of where lust was or what lust was grows up something so much greater. A stallion, this, this horse that represents what? Represents true desire, true spirituality. The, the vehicle upon which we go further and closer to God than we ever could. You see, it's our desires, rightly submitted to God, that take us to God. St. Augustine, I, I never tire of saying it, at the beginning of his confessions, which birthed the whole genre of autobiography, okay, back in the, the late 300s, early 400s, in his, the first kind of chapter of confessions, he says, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. That our desires actually find their fulfillment. That they're consummated in some sense. When we place our focus on God rather than letting our desires take us to kind of some cheap substitute. So let's go back to this drawing real quick. But so there's this huge difference in how we approach this question of what is the nature and the end of rightly ordered love or affections or desire. That we have to understand that in some sense, love is something so much deeper and bigger and fuller. Our desires were meant for something so much more mature and higher than just base physical cravings. We have to learn to begin to define love as, as something different than just an intensity of desire or something I really want or something I really have a liking for or a craving for. If we begin to define love that way, we take ourselves down a road of ultimately having to go further and further into those cravings or desires and in some sense a greater and greater immaturity. If we understand love as this dying to self that really it's about the other, then we go further and further into love. Listen to what Mortar Adler, the philosopher, said about this. Um, Mortimer Adler helped bring back kind of the great books tradition. He was a classical thinker, and he says this, If one wants another truly for some self-satisfaction, if one wants another only for some self-satisfaction, usually in the form of sensual pleasure, that wrong desire takes the form of lust rather than love. If one wants another only for some self-satisfaction, usually in the form of sensual pleasure, that wrong desire takes the form of lust rather than love. Let me define lust for us. Lust is created when you look dwell or fixate on a desirable object that is either impermissible 
or not beneficial to the degree that you give yourself over to that thing. Lust is created when you look or dwell on a desirable object that is either impermissible or not beneficial to the degree that you give yourself over to it. In short, lust is an inordinate and sinful craving for a specific person, thing, or pleasure. Frederick uh, Buchner says this, Lust is the craving for salt of a man who is dying of thirst. Lust is the craving for salt of a man who is dying of thirst. The conversation about lust needs to be about the nature and the end of rightly ordered love and desire. And if we understand God as... There's a book out now, there's a a concept out now that this generation... Uh, probably starting with my age and maybe going down into the 20s, that our view of God is what's, what's called therapeutic deism. Therapeutic deism. You can get rid of this on the screen, by the way. Therapeutic deism would be God is just this nice, roly-poly kind of an old guy that just wants to make us happy. God exists as this far-off, small, nice guy who serves therapeutic purposes in our lives. We pray to him because maybe he'll help us get what we want. In fact, he just really wants us to have what we want. You know, I mean, no one really takes seriously the, the whole thing with Santa Claus that maybe you've been naughty this year. We know that he'll forgive you the night before anyways, and give you what you really want. I mean, you know, no one really thinks that Santa's going to hold anything against you. If you really ask, and if you really need it, if you really want it, Santa's going to give it to you. Because Santa's nice, you know? If we have that view of God, we make God a servant. And we make him a servant to our wants and wishes. If we do that, we literally make our desires master of God. Do you hear what I'm saying? That we worship this, and anything that is worshipped is the center of the universe, and anything that's not the center of the universe serves the center, right? Right? The center, okay, I don't, I mean, you think of the sun. Anything not the center goes round the what? The center. I don't care if you talk about Earth and that we got our own little like moon, our own little satellite, okay? It all goes around what's really the center. And if we make our wants and wishes and desires the center and we worship it, give ourselves to it, make it the biggest thing in our, our solar system, then we force God to serve what we've put at the center. See, here's the great mistake about all this. The great mistake about sin is not that sin is just a choice. We all think sin is a choice. To turn on the TV in the hotel room. When I was uh, getting uh, my degree in philosophy uh, of religion and ethics, I had a philosophy professor who made it, this is the late 90s, who made it a habit when he was at hotels back in the day that he would ask him, you know, do you, do you see kind of the special paid channels? You know, he would ask the manager. He was an ethicist, so this was like his own little experiment, right? Do you see like the paid channels? And the guy's like, oh, yeah. So you have a lot of conferences in this hotel. Yeah. Would you be able to say which conferences tend to have the highest rate of viewership? And he says, you know, after about two years of going to really big hotels, it was amazing that the answer he got the most was the Christian conferences. Because we try to kill desire so much that you get a guy alone and anonymous, and what's he going to do? Act out. We can't just box in desire. We have to replace it with something greater. Okay, 
You don't just take a kid and tell him no ice cream. You teach him about food. Okay? And if we don't understand the nature and the order of, of kind of rightly ordered loves, here's what ends up happening when we do sin. You get a guy in that hotel room and he turns on the TV. He or she thinks they're just making a decision about that TV show. What we don't understand about sin, we think sin is one decision about one thing. All sin is an infidelity against God. All sin is choosing after we know what God wants, we know what God says, we know who God is, to accept something else instead of that. All sin is making a decision for something which means against God. What do you say when someone breaks up or, or leaves a spouse and they're like, oh, there's nobody else involved? It's just about you. There's really nothing else going on in my heart outside of you. What, what do we typically think when we hear that? That's not true. A decision is usually set in a context. And to not choose one thing is to choose another thing. And when we choose to sin, we choose to exalt, worship, treat as more valuable, or, here's the, the subtle thing, we, we hear God, and then there's a, this kind of opportunity that presents itself to us, and it promises us, because all sin comes with a promise. Go all the way back to Eve, okay? All sin promises something. And so if I turn on that TV, I know there's a promise that it's going to fill this desire I have or scratch this itch or make me feel good or make me happy. God is saying, no, no, it won't. Choose me. That's where happiness lies. That TV and sin and this possibility, it's telling me something else. And when I choose sin, I'm choosing to believe the promise made by sin. Which means I'm, I'm saying sin in this instance to me was more persuasive or more believable than what God was saying to me. I mean, do you get at the core of sin? We know God is saying, this is the way to live. Trust me. And if we know that this is offering a different path to life or happiness, and we kind of look back and then do it anyways, we're saying we, we believe this to be more reliable or trustworthy than the Word of God. At its core, sin is unfaithfulness to God in choosing something other than, than God. All sin is an infidelity. So here, let me put it to you this way. Of the 31 times in the Bible that the word lust is used, 13 of the 31 come in the book of Ezekiel. 13 out of 31 times the word lust is used in Ezekiel, one of the major prophets talking about Israel and how they've strayed from God. What do you think the context was? The context was using lust as a way of talking about idolatry. In fact, there's a number of verses where it just says that. In your lust, you have worshipped another, and you're guilty of idolatry. You have taken something other than me and exalted it to a place of importance greater than me in your lust. So what we have to realize in this is 
Sin is idolatry. Sin is not just a choice not to have God, but to have something instead of God. So when we have this view of therapeutic deism, what it allows us to do is to to simply make God small, controllable, not very holy, not very dangerous, not very scary, not very big. And we're going to just make our own decisions based on our cravings because you should be able to do what you want. Whatever makes you feel good. If it makes you happy. See, we, we live in an age of moral relativism that's unbelievably shaped by this idea that the depth of your desire should direct who you are and what you do. There's a philosophical, uh, philosophical view that started in the 1800s, kind of flowered in the 19, uh, 1900s, but it's called existentialism. <clears throat> and Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, really boiled it down better than anyone else, at least atheistic ex- existentialism. And he said, we were always raised with this idea that um, essence precedes existence. Who you are, made in the image of God, your essence, okay, this category called human, sons and daughters of God, that essence determines your existence. What is right for you, what is true, what is good, what you ought to do, ethics, morality. And Sartre comes along and says, no, it's actually the other way. Your existence is going to determine your essence, You go create yourself by your decisions. Create your own unique category, your own unique self, your own unique image. Go make for yourself who you really are going to be by your decisions. So go try them all. Let nothing be out of bounds. Try them all, sample everything, and begin to cobble things together. But go create your essence That's moral relativism as we see it in our day and on TV and everywhere else. We don't really believe that there is a true or a right or a good or that there is a difference between cotton candy and real food. We think that that's just something that Christianity made up, that all pleasures, you know, um, we should maybe sample because it's not fair that other people get to do it, but we don't get to do it. Even the book of Proverbs, though, says don't envy the wicked. We kind of do. And so, man, if... I, maybe God will just, he's a nice guy. He'll, I'll just try these things and then he'll forgive me. It's real easy to say I'm sorry tomorrow. But I got to try everything so I know what it is. And then what we don't realize is in all of this sin, we're marring the image of God in and of ourselves. Paul talks about this. Man, the spirit and the body are co-joined. Do you really think you can go commit sin without it affecting your, your spirit, your soul, your identity? You talk to young people these days so compartmentalized that it's like, why would I not go to church on Sunday morning and get really excited about worship and sleep with my girlfriend um, that week? They don't really have anything to do with each other. We, we, we think that the, the spirit and the body are so disconnected that what we do with our body doesn't affect ourselves, our hearts, in our relationship with God. I, I just came from a conference at Eastern University and there was all these studies and it was really fascinating to me. The one thing that they all had in common was a correlation between the amount of prayer and Bible study in your life and the amount of pornography that a Christian would view. All the different studies, the one thing that held true across all of them is that porn and prayer don't go together. I mean, we laugh, but do you see the obvious connection? Porn and prayer, they don't go together. Meaning, what you do over here has an effect over here. It says that in the book of Romans, that if you keep giving yourself over to lust, God will prick your conscience the first couple times. He might even slap you and try and wake you up. He might even run after you. 
And he, he's going to continue to ask you, may I kill it? But if you keep saying no long enough, what does it say in Romans? Thy will be done. You know, that's a, you know, it's another C.S. Lewisism, but um, we say in the Lord's Prayer, rightly construed to God when God is big, thy will be done. And when we make our own little life and our own wants and wishes so big that we make God small, sooner or later, God looks at us and says, okay, that will be done. And he hands us, it says in Romans, over to our lusts. All right, let's roll through these real quick. So what is our job as Christian teachers? To realize there's this really deep thing going on with the heart and ordering our loves and our, and our affections rightly. What is our job as Christian teachers? Four things really quick. Number one, to arm our students with right understanding. There is a huge need to teach good theology. We have to talk about God being big and what that means and what the implications are and that what, what holiness actually implies. And we have to talk about God's bigness so that when we come to talking about sin, it's set within a context. So we can't just run around treating symptoms. We have to teach people rightly. There's a need for better thinking in the church. We have to arm our students with right understanding. Secondly, we have to affirm and build character and virtue. This is a great under-talked about, under-emphasized aspect of the Christian life. We don't talk about character and virtue as we ought to. We have to affirm and build character and virtue. And here's the really interesting thing. You can't make a wrestler in a week. Any of you guys ever wrestle in high school? I mean, you know this. You can watch MMA today and everyone wants to know how to wrestle. But if you don't start wrestling at a young age, you're just never going to really be a phenomenal wrestler. It, it's a lifetime thing, right? It's starting young and having it just be knit into the very fabric of how you're wired. We can't build character in a week either. Here's the thing I'm trying to work out with my daughters this, this, this thought that you have to build character into children before they lose their innocence. You don't try and build character after they lose their innocence. You try and build character before they lose their innocence. You try and arm them with it. But it's a long, slow, deep process of building character. And we have to learn how to build character and virtue again in the Christian church. Not just all these quick fixes and weekend things. You know the movie uh, Count of Monte Cristo? Remember that? Same as like every movie. There's a scene where the guy that has never touched a sword before in his life, and like, it's like Rocky, you know, or anything else. In five minutes' time, they, sh- they play a cool song, and they show all this training. And then at the end of five minutes, it's like the world's greatest swordsman, right? And I once asked my high school group when I was teaching youth, I said, what did you learn? And, and I, I, it was painful. For like a half hour, I had them say things, and they finally ran out. They were like, you need a mentor if you're going to learn anything. And, you know, if you're going to learn something, you have to have a good soundtrack behind you. And, you know, and they, they finally exhausted it, and I said, what else? They're all kind of looking around, and I said, you learned that you can become the world's greatest in anything in five minutes. And that's our generation. Character and virtue is a long process that we have to give ourselves to, commit ourselves to, care enough about that we sweat for it. We have, to, we have to build character and virtue. Third thing, we have to build relationships and community that holds accountable and provides encouragement towards virtue. We have to build relationships and community that holds accountable and provides encouragement towards virtue. We have to find true community in church. Church has to become about a community, not just about Sunday services. The book of Hebrews over and over, chapter 3 and chapter 10, talks about the encouragement that, that comes from other believers. We absolutely have to do that. It's not a solo fight. Just like Hillary Clinton said, it takes a village. Okay? <laughs> it's first time for everything. Number four. Uh, 
to instill, we have to, as Christian teachers, instill a seriousness and an urgency with regard to our pursuit of holiness. We have to instill a seriousness and an urgency with regard to our pursuit of holiness. I love John Piper's book, A Hunger for God, that talks about fasting, because it's not just about foregoing food and killing desire. He, he has this way of saying when, you, when you're fasting and then you come up on the smell of food or a plate of food in front of you, that you look at that and in all that desire, you look at it and you say and you pray and you go, God, more than this, more than this, I crave you. I want you more than this cheap fix for what I really want right now, this, this appetite it's, it's a mirage compared to what I really should be hungering for. And I'm going to beat my body. And I'm going to train myself that this is cheaper and less important than my relationship with you. And let me never make food bigger than you. May I never make my appetites bigger than you. Jesus talks about the eye, listen to this in Matthew, and he says, You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw away. Look, whatever is the channel through which you are going to stop following God and start worshiping or bowing down to some other kind of desire, make something else bigger in your life, then you get serious. You take your computer, you get rid of it. You take a friend with you to the hotel. I don't care what you do, but we fight it as if it's serious. And when we fast and when we discipline, we, we treat it as as this understanding that, that desires and appetites are not the highest thing and need to be killed, but they need to be sublimated and channeled and nurtured into the right kind of desire that puts us at the feet of God so that we're with him in proximity because it's proximity to God that drives the spiritual life. Jesus says, if you are in me, you will bear much fruit. That life in the spirit brings about love, joy, peace, patience, goodness. That when we're connected to God and with him, that he will bless us and we can ask for anything in his name and he will do it. It is the proximity to God in which all of our real desires, our spiritual desires, will find their fulfillment. And so when we're looking at cheap pleasures, we have to see him that way. We have to have friends standing next to us that will help, help us see them that way. Don't let anything take root in your life that will cut away God from you. So when you get the gentle nudgings or when God says, can I kill it? I don't care how hard it is, we say yes. If we've got to read our Bible instead of watch TV, we do it. If we change to Christian music instead of other music, we do it. If our right eye causes us to sin, we get serious with it. Because we're not just talking about compartmentalized sin. We're talking about idolatry. We're talking about replacing the living God with something else. And that should never happen. It can never happen. We would never, we ought never to want it to happen. You walk out this morning, it's, this, isn't, this isn't the porn talk. What this is is a talk about your heart. My son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to a man's body. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. 
Make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm and do not swerve to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Because it's not about our degree of willpower and behavior management. It's about our heart and our heart being so in love with God that he is at the center and that all else burns away in comparison to him and that there's nothing greater in our life that we desire than but to follow him and be found with him. Father God, we do just commit our desires to you this morning. Hit the reset button on us, Father. Help us start over with our Christian walk, dear God. Help us do something supernatural, which is to care about you and our spiritual selves more, infinitely more than we do about the wants, wishes, desires, cares, and concerns of today, yesterday, this Thanksgiving week, the relational problems, the financial problems, the, the, just the need for rest and peace in our life, the need, the real legitimate need for pleasure. And in all that fatigue, Father, let us not commit idolatry and turn to something else that's promising to answer those riddles for us, but let us turn to you and you alone, knowing that you are trustworthy, reliable, that you tell the truth and that only in our relationship with you are we really going to find contentment and satisfaction.